Welcome back to the Veries and Numerous podcast of Briar.io production. That's B-R-Y-E-R.io. This is a special thank you to our sponsors. We start every show off with a thank you to them. Without them, this podcast is not possible. Introducing Zen Sports this week, a new sponsor of the Veries and Numerous podcast. Zen Sports is a peer-to-peer sports betting marketplace where anyone can create and accept sports bets with anyone else in the world without the need for a centralized bookmaker. Deposit funds instantly using cryptocurrencies or fiat. No long wait times or deposit fees. Reduce betting fees compared to traditional bookmakers. The sports utility token is used for placing bets, getting awesome discounts, cashback rewards, bonuses, and other perks. Betting is also available in Bitcoin or USD. This is a decentralized peer-to-peer platform where anyone can create and accept bets with anyone else in the world without the need of a central intermediary or a bookmaker. This is a trustless system that lets the marketplace settle bet results and disputes. Check them out at zensports.com. VinxCoin is the world's first decentralized fine French wine and vineyard-backed security token where anyone can be a fine French wine and vineyard owner from the comfort of their home. VinxCoin is currently conducting uh, the beginnings of their project over at VinxCoin.com. Check them out uh, and all of the interesting things they're doing uh, over there. Trios. Trios. What is Trios? Trios is an economy and a system, an ecosystem, a new, uh, a new economy, a fair economy. Trios is the direct reference to the decentralized money that will power a new economy. In the future, the term Trios will become synonymous with cryptocurrency, and virtual financial assets, VFAs. Their payment methods, their ecosystem, their general use as a both a utility and a store of value. Check them out over at trios.io. Sharing Coins, you found the brick-and-mortar financial institution where you can safely trade dollars for Bitcoin, USD to BTC, over-the-counter OTC, and person-to-person. They facilitate transactions of all sizes, including high-volume transactions. Their headquarters is located in Wakizi, Wakiza County, more than being just an OTC location where hot, we're, we are, they are here to educate you about Bitcoin wallets, blockchain, cryptocurrency, security, and platforms. If you're in the Milwaukee area, you can also uh, visit their ATM, their Bitcoin ATM, and more locations are coming soon. Visit SharonCoins.com. Bitcoin SOV, Bitcoin Store of Values, an emerging community-driven product. That has a decentralized team the world over. It is a proof-of-work mineable ERC-20 and has a deflationary design with token burns to ensure your value is stored over time. Check out their site at bsov.io. Lucho Paletti is a talented artist who created that masterpiece hanging up on my wall there, the Andy Warhol Buy Bitcoin uh, uh, piece of art there, which I love a lot. Check him out. He has pages of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin art over there. Keychains he's working on right now. Check him out over at luchopoletti.com. That's L-U-C-H-O-P-O-L-E-T-T-I.com. Flashcoin is a reinvention of Litecoin built to scale for, the worldwide, for worldwide commerce and fast enough to handle everyday transactions. The flexible and easy to integrate core code allows exchanges and wallets to add Flash to their platform within hours. With a settlement time of around five seconds and consensus, within two minutes, anyone, anywhere can use Flash Mobile Wallet as, as easily as cash or a credit card. Uh, 
I've talked about this before on the podcast. They're a new sponsor, but I've been using Flashcoin for a few years myself. They have a really cool um, uh, integrated marketplace within their app where you can uh, visit uh, vendors, merchants around the world, and you can see their products and, uh, um, you know, do commerce right over the app. So it's really cool. And um, uh, the future of uh, decentralized commerce. So check them out over at flashcoin.io. And as always, before we get into the episode today, remember nothing on briar.io written or spoken should be interpreted as financial advice. Always do your own research. You are the captain of your own financial ship. You control your own sovereignty and uh, uh, just make sure that you always do your own research and uh, educate yourself, self-invest in education and knowledge. Thank you everyone for listening to the show. Let's get into today's episode and uh, always, always appreciate you guys listening. All right, we're here for episode 12. I appreciate everybody tuning in to this episode with one of my favorite people in the world, uh, Mr. Spike Cohen. He's an entrepreneur, fellow anarcho-capitalist, podcaster. So he's, a, he's a basically a political com, uh, commentator on uh, all sorts of things, uh, politics, obviously, economic theory. And he is the running mate for Mr. Vernon Vermin. Supreme for the Libertarian ticket uh, for he'll, as the Vice President of the United States of America. Welcome, uh, Mr. Cohen, to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. You are one of the uh, most knowledgeable people I know and one of the most hilarious people I know. You are a meme lord on the internet, <laughs> and uh, you crack me up uh, every time I get it, log into uh, Facebook or something, you, you're always on there to make me smile. So uh, I appreciate you coming on and donating some time today. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you're one of my favorite people on online as well. And I don't just say that because of what you said, although it helped. I mean, you saying that <laughs> definitely moves you up the hierarchy. But no, I uh, I absolutely enjoy your your insights on crypto and everything else. So no, I appreciate it. I, I, I As a living meme, it is nice to have people who occasionally put serious information out there as well. I appreciate it. So let's get straight into it. Uh, the hot topic of the day uh, mm-hmm. is COVID. I, I we'll backpedal here in a minute to get into your early life, but we got to sure. lead off with the big hitter here. Oh, of course. The of daily course. hitter, which is COVID-19. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what Has anyone personally been affected uh, by the virus? Uh, you, we talked a little bit off camera. We'll get into it now on the podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, anybody you know or do you think you may have had it? Yeah. So I, let me start, start first, but I, so I have some, I have a friend that, that believes that they have it. Um, and, uh, at one of these situations, she's positive. She has it. She has all the symptoms. She tested negative for the flu and she doesn't meet the pre-screening requirements to get tested for it. So she may, until they come up with an antibody test, she may never know if she got it or not, but they told her to go ahead and assume that she does and to quarantine. So she's in like week two of her three week quarantine and she's doing okay, but she's possibly has it and is not doesn't even know if she does um and i know just anecdotally some friends of friends and some family of friends and things like that who have it um but she's the one that i know that's the the closest to me um but uh it's you know it's a scary thing in terms of my having it uh as i was just saying to you uh before we went on uh i'm pretty sure i may have gotten it in february when i went up to um uh when i went up to new hampshire to uh, campaign with vermin at the new hampshire primaries uh had a great time and uh, was there all Tuesday by late Wednesday night, almost early Thursday morning. I was incredibly sick, had a really high fever, had, you know, uh, I didn't have the, the toughness, the difficulty breathing, but I was definitely wheezing a little bit and my, you know, coughing and sneezing and the whole thing. Went to the doctor, 
tested negative for the flu. They said there at that point, this was back in February, there was no test for COVID that they had. Uh, and they said, or back then they were still calling it coronavirus. And they said, yeah, you know, you, you let's just assume you have it. So, you know, try to stay away from others for a week or so. Back then they didn't know how long it could, it could incubate, uh, or at least they didn't know. And so I just was very cautious. You know, I wore a surgical mask uh, everywhere I went uh, for the better part of, part of about two weeks and uh, took Tamiflu just in case it was the flu. And, uh, and, you know, about a week and a half or two later, I, I was pretty much back to normal. Um, but that doesn't sound like the flu. That sounds like potentially COVID. So I, yeah. I think there are a ton more people that have it than we even know. Um, I just, on my show, My Fellow Americans, um, my, my last guest, uh, who is uh, a micro science, micro, a biosciences. Anyway, he, he does science and he does, he does specifically doing drug testing and medical testing for or medical biosciences researcher. Anyway, whatever he, he said that he would go ahead, whatever the, the numbers are, the official confirmed cases, go ahead and add two or three zeros to the end of that. And that's more than likely how many Americans actually have it. Um, so should, that should, that might just be like a, uh, as the government adds zeros to our uh, monetary supply, maybe yes. add zeros, something like that. Quantitative <laughs> easing of, of COVID patients. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Just, just go ahead and assume that if they're saying there's, what is it? Uh, 30,000 cases now or whatever, go ahead and assume that it's, you know, 3 million or, uh, or, you know, or, or 300,000 or something like that. Um, or no, yeah, no, 3 million or yeah, even 30 million. You're asymptomatic for up to two weeks. At least that's what was the story a few weeks ago. So you're asymptomatic for up to two weeks, and I wasn't asymptomatic. And if I had it, we'll never know. And I wasn't right. counted. And that's the, that's the other thing. We've got asymptomatic cases for two weeks, so it takes a while for the true cases to catch up with the confirmed ones. And then you've also got the fact that a lot of people who, especially in the states, a mm -hmm. lot of people who have it don't get tested. They just have to go right. home and try to get better. And hopefully they do. I mean, so there's no, there's no cure anyway. So you might as no, well just stay at home and not infect anybody else. Which, you know, ultimately whatever the person's dealing with right then, it's more than likely contagious. And it's more than likely better that they just stay home until they get better. And if, and if they don't actually need critical care, it's better for them not to be, you know, using up a hospital bed. So Absolutely. I get it. But the problem is like, we're not being told how many people have this. And a lot of us are still downplaying it, even though it's like doubling every three days, because it's like, well, you know, but there's 300 million people and there's only 30,000 people. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm pretty sure at least like 5% of the population already has it. I would um, not be just, surprised. Just in my position, in my opinion, but, but we shall see. So it is definitely the, uh, it is definitely the, the, what is dominating the news for obvious reasons. Yeah, so as we uh, I alluded to in the intro, and you have on here the vice presidential Jew. Um, uh, what, how would you? How would you? Uh, how would a Spike Cohen uh, administration uh, tackle this problem? So this is an interesting thing. We I actually was just on a uh, on a, pa a podcast called V Radio, uh, which is a uh, more progressive leaning podcast. And the interviewer was was you know very congenial, but he had some tough questions because he's not a libertarian and he wanted to you know get be make sure we were on the same page with things. And he basically said, you know what? And I've and I've been asked this before. You know, you're a libertarian. You want government to stay out of things, but right now it looks like the best way to handle this is to have government you know, make sure people stay away from each other so it doesn't spread as fast and, you know, mm -hmm. and, and give money to people so they don't have to go to work and all of this stuff. You know, how can, you know, how would a libertarian deal with this? How, how would a libertarian, you know, use less government or even no government uh, to, 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 you know, fix this problem? And uh, my answer was, well, let's look at why this happened in the first place. 
when our government found out that this disease existed, uh, which would have been, I think it was early January that they were first being told about it. And so by January 10th or 15th, they had a good idea of what we were grappling. Maybe not quite as much detail as we have now, but they knew the basics, that it could more than likely spread asymptomatically, which is a big deal. If something can spread without you being able to you know, screen them for a fever or see if they're coughing or sneezing, that makes it way easier to spread. SARS, which actually has a higher fatality rate, was not nearly as dangerous as this because it didn't spread until the person had symptoms. So you were able to screen everyone that was trying to leave that area where the outbreak was and if they had a fever, not let them go. So that was able, you were able to you know, screen them that way. Um, so we knew it spread, or the government knew it spread asymptomatically. They knew that uh, if it was anything like SARS or, or MERS or the other coronaviruses, that it, it could be up to a two-week incubation period, which means it could be spread by people for up to two weeks without you know, any, any sneezing or coughing or anything else, which is scary as hell. That's why it's spreading as fast as it is. Um, they knew that if it was anything like the other coronaviruses, that unlike the flu, it could live outside of the body on some surfaces for up to weeks uh, depending on on the type of surface and the and the and the the, the, the weather conditions there, uh, that it could live for up to weeks on certain surfaces and 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 days on other ones. Um, so they knew that this thing was going to spread easily and undetected unless you could jump on it immediately and you know make sure that no one got it. So what did they do? Well, first they went around and told everyone everything was okay and that this was a big hoax. And when they weren't doing that. They were enforcing CDC regulations that effectively barred testing for COVID. The most important thing that we could be doing is testing people, even if they don't have symptoms, so that if they, if, if they come up positive, because again, they don't have to have symptoms to spread right. it to others. If they come up positive, they can be contained. They can be told to self-quarantine. They can be kept out of the general public for two or three weeks so that it can be contained. That's essentially what they've done in South Korea. They haven't done any real lockdowns or anything like that. They've simply tested everyone that they can and contained them. And that has pretty much kept the, the spread from going exponential. It's still spreading, but not nearly at the rate that it was. And, and it's also kept the fatality rate lower because the fewer people you have needing hospital care, uh, something like 10 to 20% of people that get this disease need hospital care. And the fewer people you have at any given time needing hospital care, the fewer of them aren't that you'll have that aren't getting care and are having to wait out in a, in a hospital hallway because there just aren't enough respirators and doctors and everything that, to, to help them. Um, and so that's the best way to do it. And we knew that. So instead, we told everyone, you can't test without getting approval from the CDC first. And the way that you do that is you email them with your application and you mail it to them. You do both. You do the mail and the email and you give them five to seven business days to respond, uh, confirming receipt uh, in the mail. And within three to four business weeks, they'll respond back telling you what additional information they need. And then you'll have to send it back to them and it'll take five to seven days uh, for them to receive that. And typically, uh, we should be able to let you start testing for COVID sometime around June, maybe July. Now, keep in mind. The people saying this in the CDC are not dumb people. They work for the CDC. They know what a rate of doubling looks like. They right. know that by June, we're all going to have it if we don't <laughs> do something. Like, they know that. But yet, that's what the magic sheet of paper that they have to follow because it's their job told them to say. Oh, that says right here, June or July. Thankfully... You had a handful of doctors such as Dr. Helen Chu uh, with the University of Washington and other doctors and, and medical professionals at different hospitals and universities in Boston, in Washington State, and in California, and I believe in Texas, who said, 
Yeah, no, I, uh, I pledged a Hippocratic oath when I became a doctor and I'm not going to, you know, let people, uh, I'm not going to, you know, not do harm to people. I, I, I'm getting people with these, with these symptoms that are coming from Wuhan, China, that, you know, coming back from visiting Wuhan, China, and they have the exact symptoms and they're coming up negative for the flu. We're going to go ahead and, and illegally test them. And that's what they did. And many of them came back positive. That's why we had positive results in late January and early February, even though testing wasn't allowed. They did it illegally. When they, I did when they, not realize that. Before they released it to the public. So they knew this sometime third, fourth week of January. Before they released it to the public, they went to the CDC and said, uh, we're getting back positives. There are now people in the U.S. that have this disease, and we need to let people know. The CDC's initial response was to tell them to destroy all of the positive results and all of the tests that they've created to give people and mm -hmm. to never tell anyone about it. That they, they would try to put a gag order on them. See, I really believe that I had this at the end of December, and I think this has been around for a while, and there's no way to know. There is no, there's no way, way to, to know. know. And, you know, we are at the mercy, as much as you and I especially mm -hmm. hate it, of the, which is basically no different from the Chinese media in the United States. We, our, our media is basically state-sponsored. I mean, they don't, no one's going to come out and say that, but it is. I mean, we've all seen the videos of, of, of the meshed uh, – the compilation of the different anchors across the country saying, saying the same, the same exact, exact thing. thing. Yep. Yeah. So the, the story doesn't differ much, uh, no matter where you are in the United States. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So here you had a situation where they told them to, to, to destroy the results. Thankfully, most of them said, no, screw that. We're already in for a penny. We're going to be in for a pound. And they released it to the public. They said, we have positive COVID patients. If they hadn't done that, there's a good chance that we just now be finding out that there are COVID patients. And how much, worse, how much worse would that situation be? Right. So in addition to that, we have problems that are not an immediate thing from the CDC. We have certificate of need laws that make it so that if you want to build a hospital or, a, or an emergency center somewhere, you have to get enough petitions to make up a certain percentage of the population in that general region. And then you have to take it to a certificate of need authority who decides whether or not to let you build a hospital somewhere. Because as we both know, the best way to increase access and reduce the cost is to artificially keep supply low by not letting people build hospitals. Right. So in the, in the best of conditions, that means the higher cost of care and the you know, lower quality, lower amount of access. In Please. these types of conditions, it means people dying in hospital hallways and lobbies because there aren't enough beds for them and there aren't enough respirators and doctors and everything else for them. And then we have the, the intellectual patent laws that keep um, intellectual patent laws that make it so that uh, if you wanted to build a respirator right now and sell it, even at, you know, at cost, right. you can't do that unless you have the patent. Oh, and by the way, if you wanted to build a respirator because of regulations in place for medical devices, you'd have to wait between 45 and 90 days for approval, and then you could start building it. You cannot start building it until you get that approval. So even if they wanted to start making masks right now, uh -huh. they can't. This is another problem. This is the perfect segue into the next question. Okay. The economic uh, consequences of this are going to be drastic. Oh, yeah. And, insane. And I actually think they outweigh the, um, and I'm not underplaying the uh, severity of this disease. I know a lot of, or uh, this virus, I know a lot of people are going to die. I know it was very uncomfortable if it's what I had. And I know that I have seen images and videos of people that are really struggling. But you cannot understate what we are doing to our economy right now, we are, we, we, I shouldn't use we, the, the people in charge these, in, in, of the governments around the world, these central banks, everywhere you look, the, uh, the Bank of England, uh, the Chinese Central Bank, um, 
us especially, all the European banks, I think I saw Germany today is printing more. All these central banks are printing money. What would you do uh, differently? What, uh, as far as, you know, these stay-at-home orders and stuff, I think I have a feeling I already know what you would do, but uh, what would it be business as normal or what would you, uh, how would you try to handle this? If I were in charge, it would have been contained because I would have taken the the government's boot hold off, boot off of the neck of the market trying to save people and contain people. We wouldn't be facing what we're facing right now. We would have a situation where there would still be a highly virulent uh, pathogen out there that has a, 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 a fatality rate of anywhere between 10 and maybe even 30 or 40 times the rate of the flu. So, and, and, and I mean, it's, it's a serious illness, uh, mm-hmm. but it, it would still be a frightening thing. And we would still tell people to be vigilant. I would still be explaining to people what this thing is and why we should be doing, you know, socially distancing and stuff like that. But we, there wouldn't be a need for lockdowns. There wouldn't be a need for any of that because a, I would have taken the, 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 the government's boot off of the throat of the people trying to deal with it, that the providers and the, and the healthcare professionals and the testers and all of these things. I also wouldn't have gone around and told the entire country that it was a hoax, which a third of the country would instantly believe me just because I'm the guy they picked. Right. And that, that would be a very, cause you've still got people walking around saying this thing's a hoax. It's, a, it's no worse than the flu. I'm going to do what I want. And whether they ever get sick or not, there's a good chance they're spreading it to people who are going to get sick. Um, so we wouldn't be facing the question of whether we needed to lock down. We'd be more in a situation like some of these countries that have very little cases, not because it's not present there, but because they don't have these you know, systemic barriers in place that are keeping providers from being able to actually test people. Like it's, it's, it's astounding, the idea that we are two months into this thing being active here and still turning away people who need testing. Testing. Like at this point, everyone should be able to access easy testing at least once a week. And it, that would be the case if instead of doing the things that they did, barring them and only Reese, by the way, I need to finish that story. After they released it and put pressure on the government, the CDC had to back off and say, okay, fine, you can keep testing and, and, and you'll still have to apply, but you can go ahead and start testing as long as you apply within 15 or 30 days and you don't have to wait for approval. That's why testing's happening at all because the CDC went and spent billion, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to create their own test and it failed. It didn't work right. And yet there's already like a dozen different types of tests that all work fine. So <laughs> If it were left up to government, we still wouldn't be getting tested. So it's just, it's astounding. So no, if I were in charge, we wouldn't be facing this. Let's be clear about something. Mm -hmm. What we are facing right now is happening because government forced us into the situation. And it just so happens, how how serendipitous for them, it creates a situation for them where they get to control us and put their boot even further on us and tell us if we can go, how many times we can walk our dog or go to the store or whatever else. Because we're now in a scenario where you really can't let more than 10, 20, 30 people get together or else there's this massive spread. So you're talking economically. There are two different things. We are going to more acutely feel the effects of this. This next week, a lot of the people that are still saying this isn't serious are going to start seeing the exponential growth in deaths. And then the following week, an even great, a continued exponential growth until it's suddenly getting to say stuff like it's not as deadly as the flu is not, it's not going to be a good take anymore because that's, that's what happens when it's able to spread. We are actually one of the worst case scenarios for how countries have dealt with this. Italy was more proactive than we are. And look at where Italy is. Their, their fatality rate is like 8%. 
Like this is, this is not good. So acutely we are facing a situation of, of tens, millions or even tens of millions of Americans dying from this. Long-term, that coupled with the total shutdown of America or near total shutdown of America is going to leave behind, coupled with the correction that was going to be happening to the market any day now anyway, right. and coupled with the horrific monetary policy of the U.S. government just handing out money, we're going to be feeling this for decades. It's going to be really, really bad. Long after there's a vaccine, long after we've you know done antibody tests and everything and all but eradicated COVID from mankind, we're going to be facing the effects from the disease directly and from the indirect effect from the economy, all because the government wouldn't just get the hell out of the way of the market in fixing things. Excellent answer there. I'm glad you elaborated on all that stuff because I, there's things that I didn't know, a lot of things you just mentioned that I didn't know. Uh, one thing that I think was interesting is you noted uh, South Korea. And um, they South Koreans are pretty smart people. Uh, I think Americans are smart people too, but we've just been uh, – We've had it too good for too long, I think, and we just don't take things as seriously as we could. Uh, do you have any? Do you, you want to add anything to that? Two things. First of all, South Korea also remembers SARS, so I think when this happened and they were told this is worse than SARS, they snapped into place. They didn't need to be told what to do. Right. They decided for themselves. Okay, we need to do some social distancing. We need to be doing some telecommuting. We need to do this. We need to do that. But also. And again, and it's, it's government-run healthcare. Like, I'm not saying like, oh, it's the free market over there. What I'm saying is they weren't stupid. They weren't right. as stupid about it because they actually had a concept of what they were doing. I still think a, a totally free market would do an even better job than South Korea has done. But the point is they tested and they contained people who it had cares. it. And, and, and that is a serious difference. In the United States, I have witness, witnessed it firsthand, not just with this, and we've all witnessed it firsthand. American citizens who go to government schools are raised on a really deadly mix of normalcy bias and American exceptionalism. That couldn't possibly happen over here, and I can't possibly imagine that happening because I've never experienced anything like that before. There are still people that I will talk to who will say, well, yeah, but that's over there. That's in Italy. And I'll say, yeah, but it's also in New York City. It's also in Seattle. It's also like the, the nightmare scenarios are already beginning to unfold, and they'll go, yeah, but that's in New York City. And it's like, okay, but that's the same country you live in. We've been raised on this. And everyone has normalcy bias. Like we have these, yeah. these irrational biases, biases that, we, that, we, that you know, we use to try to cope with things that we can't process in that moment, right? Like, you know, we have all sorts of fallacious stuff that we do. But we also have an, a special kind of fallacy that only Americans have, which is this American exceptionalism. I mean, they even titled it. They named it, you know, like you said, yeah, no, that's exceptional. And yeah. they, they're not like ashamed of it. Like you're supposed to be proud of that bias. You know? Couldn't happen here. Could not happen here. <laughs> Donald Trump today right. said this country wasn't built to shut down. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this virus does not care about your nationality does right. not care what you were built for people a lot of people weren't built for this virus but guess what you didn't care about that either like it doesn't care if you were built for it. and and because of our you know because of the united states government's position in being able to basically act as the world bully that keeps a lot of people away from you know trying to do things that they might do to smaller countries but i got news for you the economic crash didn't bypass the U.S. This one's absolutely not going to bypass the U.S. 
diseases do not bypass the U.S. There are some that we do better with, like, for example, with Ebola, which largely was a problem of it really could only spread rapidly due to poor high, uh, sanitation. So like poor water treatment and stuff like that. So that's why Ebola was only in certain, was only an epidemic in certain areas, because once it left there, it was so hard for it to spread that you really, unless your water wasn't being treated correctly and it, and it you know, infected the water supply, you, it was almost impossible to spread it from person to person any other way, or it was very difficult. So it was easy to contain. So when that one guy came over with Ebola, it didn't spread. No one else got it. Thank God, because Ebola's death rate something like 40%. Um, but my point is this one, yeah, no, this one doesn't care where you are. It doesn't care what your religion is. It doesn't care, care what your nationality is. It doesn't care how hard you pray. It doesn't care how hard you do anything. It's going to infect you because it's a, it's a zoonotic illness that we have no natural immunity to. So even if your immune system's real strong, it, you might fight it off better and not suffer as badly, but you're still going to get it and you can still spread it to others. So this is, but that's, you know, part of the problem that Americans have is that, that a lot of Americans have is that we were raised on this concept that we're like uniquely different from any other human being on earth. And that hubris allows us to suffer some stuff really flat footed because we'll watch it headed straight for us and go, that's not going to happen to me. It's totally not going to happen to me. We're America. And guess what? It can happen to anyone. Perfect explanation. It's like even when the train's barreling down on us, we still can't see it. We have the, our blinders on. Yep. It's crazy. Couldn't happen. Couldn't happen. So let's backpedal a little bit. We got the uh, COVID talk out of the way. <laughs> I, I, I always like to get a little background on my guests, uh, you know, uh, before we delve into things. But this is that's sort of the hot topic now. So I wanted to get that out of the way. Right. So where did uh, young Spike Cohen grow up? I want to know a little bit about your childhood. Little Lil Spike. Lil Spike, that was my yeah. rap name. Um, <laughs> uh, so I grew up in the – I was actually born in Baltimore, but I grew up in the – uh, in the Myrtle Beach, South Carolina area where I still live today. Um, and a funny story about Baltimore, Vermin Supreme ran for mayor of Baltimore in 1987. Wow. In 1988, we left. And so what I tell people is that we were so disgusted that, Ver- I mean, I was like five when this happened. We were so, my parents were so disgusted that Vermin Supreme didn't get elected mayor that we, we moved out. So it's a good story. But that anyway, so um, it, it, it dovetails well. But so uh, it, very interesting growing up in the South, a Jew in the deep South. This was before all the Yankees moved down here. We were like the first wave. Um, and, uh, very interesting stuff. I've always been a libertarian. Um, for example, uh, I changed my name to Spike when I was three. I went to, uh, I was, uh, I, I didn't like the name Jeremy and I went to, in fact, my brother actually told me that Jeremy was a girl's name like Jenny or Julie. And so I didn't like it. And, uh, so I went to, we went to see, Here's another vermin thing. I went to see the My Little Pony movie uh, in 1985. I'm dating, I'm aging myself here. But uh, I, I went to see the My Little Pony movie in 1985 and uh, fell in love with the, with, the, uh, with the character Spike, the purple dragon, uh, who was the, uh, he was sort of the plot device to, to, you know, win against all hope at the end. He became this giant, you know, because he believed in himself or something. I don't know, whatever. He became this giant a uh, giant version of himself and was able to defeat the wizard or whatever. I don't even remember what the movie was about. And so, and so he was the hero and I absolutely loved him. And so shortly after that, I told my parents that Jeremy was dead and that I'm Spike, um, which went over, over very well. And uh, they assumed that that was going to end that day and it didn't. Um, I kept insisting on being called Spike and uh, they even took me to a child behavioralist. 
uh, who said, uh, and this was in the eighties. This was before like taking your kid to a child behavioralist was a normal thing. Like this was what you did when your kid was nuts and refused to go by the name or something. Today it's like and, mainstream. Yeah. Today it's like mainstream. Yeah. My head took my kid to the child behavioralist and you know, he's totally oppositionally defined or whatever. So, but, 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 you know, back then it was like, you did that if your kid was schizo or something. So anyway, so I would, uh, uh, so they took me there and the guy said, there's nothing wrong with him. He's just really dead set on this. Maybe just call him spike and he'll get over it. Well, I'm 30, I'm going to be 38 this year. Um, so at this point, still not over it's it. not over it. I'd say it's stuck. It's stuck. Yeah, it's a good name. It's. It, I think it suits you well too. Honestly, thank you. It's perfect. Thank so, you. And and it fits perfectly with the Vermin Supreme thing because his whole thing is you know he's going to give everyone a free pony. And right. I I come from I was arguably the first brony. Um, you know I was so in love with My Little Pony as a kid. It could be argued that I was actually the first brony, making me the the ideal choice as Vermin Supreme because he has a a large brony fan base. And having the original, the OB, the original Brony, Lil Spike, uh, as his VP is is fitting. Yeah, I think it might be fate. So what were you like in uh, school? Were you a good student back then? Oh, man. Um, I was you're, good. You're a really acad- smart guy. I, I consider you a pretty intelligent fella when I talk to you. I know you know a lot about a lot. So, uh, so I, I was. I you were good. A good yeah, student. so I was. I, so I, first of all, I was in and out of, of uh, homeschooling and public schooling for various reasons, usually my own behavior. Um, but I, so I academically did well, but behaviorally did poorly. So like, for example, I, I scored when we did the PSAT in seventh grade as part of Duke university's identification talent identification program, I scored, I forget what it was, but it was like in the highest, highest percentile of my class, um, in the honors class. But I also like was the one that was always in ISS and being suspended. So it was like one of those things. And then I discovered drugs, uh, which really made it fun for high school. Um, I actually got kicked out of high school, both schools in the district and told that I had to be homeschooled for the rest of that time or else I'd be sent to juvie. And, um, and so, uh, and I won't get into why, but just, just suffice it to say that I didn't do any of it and I'm totally innocent. Um, but I, I went to, uh, so I, I was homeschooled those uh, remaining two years, top of my class uh, of one. And uh, so I, I, I say, I say I barely made it out of high school. I did not go to college. I, uh, I actually started a, a web design business uh, when I was 16, right before my 17th birthday. I'm going to um, ask you I, about that. Yeah. I started a web design company and, um, and uh, it was pretty successful. Uh, ran that for the better part of, well, until 2016. And then uh, I, I was actually, I started uh, having symptoms that turned out to be MS in 2014. Two years later in 2016, I was diagnosed with MS. And so I decided to, it really was kind of a turning point in my life where I'm like, okay, well, I don't really like my business. It just makes money, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't like what I'm doing. It doesn't make me happy. Right. And it, it made me miserable. And, and by extension, made my wife miserable because I was miserable. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, um, I think I'm going to devote my life to what I actually care about, which is spreading the message of liberty. And so I, uh, I liquidated my company and, um, and took about a year hiatus from doing much of anything. Uh, so most of 2017, I just napped a lot and learned how to meditate and stuff like that, became Zen Spike. And, uh, and then I, I started uh, my show, uh, My Fellow Americans, uh, in 2018. And I became the uh, co-host of the Muddy Waters of Freedom, 
uh, with my co-host and heterosexual life partner, Matt Wright. And then I became the co-owner of Muddy Waters Media. And that's what I've been doing ever since. And then at the end of last year, just a, a perfect, my whole thing has been spreading the message of liberty and uh, self-ownership and non-aggression and voluntarism over, over coercion uh, to an audience, trying to spread it outside of libertarian circles to you know, an audience that hasn't heard of such things or has just gotten a really bad hot take of what libertarianism is. And so I can repair that for them. And um, this campaign has just been an extension of that, using humor to spread a liberty message outside of liberty circles so that we can actually have a, a, a proper movement one day. All right. Well, you just uh, nailed like my next five questions. <laughs> but let me, let me try to unpack a little more about, the, about each one because uh, that was hilarious. You literally just went through like five Went questions. through every single question. <laughs> <laughs> I, no. love when my, I love when my guests do that, when I'll be yeah. like, Oh, good. There was 20 minutes of, of <laughs> question and answer that just went out the window. Sorry about that. No, you're good. I, I, want, I didn't want to cut you off because you were, uh, that was good. I was on a roll. I was on yeah, a roll. you were. You were in the zone there. Uh, <laughs> so I want to know more about your business, if, that, if, you, if you don't mind talking about it. You said you don't, you didn't, you don't really, uh, you didn't care to do it, but do you mind uh, telling us a little bit more? I know it was uh, technology uh, web-based, right? Something mm-hmm. about yeah, so, so web design, uh, which, which, you know, web design, social, uh, uh, man, I don't even use, use the terms anymore. Search engine optimization, social oh, okay. media marketing, once social media became a thing. Uh, um, I never really got into mobile apps, but I got into mobile website optimization so that it worked. It showed up correct. I was like one of the first designers, uh, one of the first small business designers that was making, uh, mobile optimized websites as, as early as like beginning of 2012 at a time when like people were still making legit desktop only websites for like another two years. Um, I was kind of at the cutting edge of that. And, uh, but when I first started uh, web design, uh, so I was putting in perspective where I was in life. Um, I wanted to be able to not have to leave my house house often. Uh, I was kind of preparing for COVID actually. I, I, so I was very like, you know, my parents said you either have to go to college or start a business. Uh, either way you can't just like, you know, go and get a regular job or whatever. Um, and, and honestly, like they used to have me, uh, do, um, like, uh, I used to work, uh, at restaurants when I was a kid, uh, in, uh, in like oyster bars and stuff during the summer. And it was cool making money under the table and all that. Um, allegedly I, I never made right. money under the table. I'm saying hypothetically, that would be cool if someone did that. Um, but it was cool making money, but like I hated working for someone else. And it was actually really cool to learn at like 13, 14, 15 that like, I don't want to work for someone else. This sucks. Like, and I'm seeing people doing the same job I'm doing and they're like in their late twenties and early thirties. And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm definitely not going to do this. So I definitely knew I wanted to do my own thing. And I just hated school. I did not want to do uh, university or college or whatever. I'm like, if I want to learn something, I can go on the internet and learn it. And so I realized I could go on the internet and learn how to make websites. And what's cool, this is a really cool lesson about, about government uh, regulation. If I had decided I wanted to do something that required a license and a diploma to do, I would have had to run up back then, maybe not six figures, but back then, you know, five figures of student debt and, mm-hmm. and not be in the workforce for, you know, four to six years, depending on what I, what I got into, maybe even eight years. And then I could finally start making money after that, having spent four, eight, four to eight years learning, you know, not even really learning the thing, just doing the stuff I had to do to get the degree that allowed me to get the, the license to do the thing. Instead, I picked something that was unregulated. And so because of that, I was able to get to work right away. 
All I had to do was get the software and, and I apprenticed under some other people who made web designs and I did a lot of research online and a lot of trial and error. And I went around to businesses and you know offered websites for free just to build up my portfolio. And I did that for the better part of a year. And then I started like slowly introducing actual, you know, charging, uh, you know, having an actual price until within two, three years, I was charging, you know, I always try to stay at the lower end of market price just to be competitive, but I was charging market prices for it. And at that point I was, you know, still in my teens and uh, I hadn't, I had zero dollars in any college debt. And, uh, and so it, it gave me a, a real uh, early boost um, compared to other people because I didn't, have to do the schooling part. I just went straight into business, learned the ropes as I was going, taught myself what I needed to know. And if there were anything outside of that, that I wanted to know about political stuff, history stuff, science stuff, whatever, I'd go research it and find out about it. That's what I do now. Um, and so, but so my first websites were, you know, stuff that they teach kids to make in high school now, because it was a basic HTML coding, even before style sheets and stuff like that. And uh, once search engines really became like a prominent way that people found out about stuff um, coming into the early 2000s, I, I was, you know, getting into search engine optimization, making sure the websites ranked well, uh, which was not a competitive field like it is now. Back then, most web designers didn't even care about the marketing end of it. Uh, it, you know, and, and then when social media started becoming a thing in the, in the mid to late two thousands, you know, started integrating that. So I, I always tried to stay, you know, I wasn't necessarily the first one to do it, but I was certainly on the cutting edge, especially for like small businesses doing it. And so I was always able to stay kind of lean, you know, and, uh, and, 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 you know, reach a point where I wasn't doing all the work myself. And right around the time that I was thinking, okay, I'm actually going to start upscaling this into a you know, licensable, licensable, you know, business with, with, you know, different, uh, you know, branches and stuff like that was when the MS stuff happened. And I think it was just the stress of it was killing me. So it was probably a good thing. It's probably a blessing in disguise because I, I would still be miserable. I'd have more money than now, but I'd be miserable. And, something uh, I was really wanting to know about you because I've known you for a few years now and I knew you had this business, but I didn't know a lot about it. Yeah, no, I, I've been, since you've known me, I've been retired effectively. Yeah. I shouldn't say retired because the stuff I'm doing keeps me busy, but I don't have like uh, a, another thing I'm doing. I do right. muddied waters and I'm doing this campaign. Um, so, you know, the, the web design uh, field and my business treated me well, and I, I'm, I'm blessed to have had that and, and to have the security that came from that. But um, man, it was, it. <laughs> I do not miss it. I don't miss it. I mean, I, I you know, my goal was to become a billionaire. I'm never going to be a, well, I shouldn't say I'm never, but I don't believe I'm going to become a billionaire anymore, but you know, we're doing okay. And, uh, and, and, you know, I, 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 I definitely have some security that came from that. Um, but in terms of, in terms of doing that, I, I would not, I'll occasionally make a website for a friend or something like that. But for the most part, like I'm not, I'm so much happier doing it. Like I'm happy to wake up and do the stuff I do. I get excited right. to do it like and I said. never, I never got excited to make websites. Well, you said you're effectively retired in quotations, you kind of said, and you're under 40 years old. So you've done pretty, pretty damn well for yourself. So I'm happy. I'm, I, I did, I did well. I, I didn't, you know, again, I, I was hoping to become a billionaire. I'm probably not going to happen at this point, but, uh, you but I, know. I, you know, I, that's true. You know, if I end up becoming vice president, then I'll have all sorts of opportunities. After. Absolutely. Uh, all sorts of lobbyist opportunities. All sorts of lobbying <laughs> stuff, right? I can be, I can become the, the highest paid Shill, uh, Coke brothers. I shouldn't say that. I, I, I'll become, I'll become, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll become a big lobbyist in the, in, you know, for, I don't know, Cargill or something like that. 
That's perfect. So you, we, we've obviously, I wanted to have a lot of entrepreneurs and stuff on here. You're the first uh, political figure now that you're a political figure and we are anarcho-capitalists. We can't get that twisted either. Of so course. when did you uh, get uh, delve into that theory? Like uh, the anarcho, it, was that like an Austrian school thing? Uh, you know, I'm a huge admirer of the Austrian school and the great Murray Rothbard. I think right. you uh, are those your inspirations for that? Uh, you know, so uh, I am all I over. So the first way, so two, there are kind of two questions there. One, how did I get here? And two, where am I now? So I got here, I was originally a neocon. Okay. So I was the stereotypical young, you know, business owner, entrepreneur type who really didn't care what government was doing to other people. I just wanted them to keep my taxes low and, you know, basically don't tread on me specifically. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, I was very much caught up in the whole post 9-11, you know, 9-11 happened when I was 19. And so, you know, young adult believing that, you know, the only way we could keep our freedom safe from the people who hated them was to protect our freedoms by fighting and bringing, spreading democracy around the world. And we got to get them first, man. We got to get them first. We got to fight them over there or we're going to have to fight them over here. (laughs) And we got to protect our greatest ally in the region, which is of course, Israel. And, you know, I mean like the whole thing, like, I mean, I was the whole kit and caboodle, neocon straight up and down and then over time and this is why it's important to me to talk to people outside of liberty circles i had people constitutionalists libertarians some anarchists but not a lot this was before like facebook and stuff but like on different like political chat boards and stuff talking with me and then when i became closer friends with them talking on the phone with them and stuff and and really like getting them to getting having them get me to examine like why do you think the way you think these things and you know first i was a bit of a constitutionalist you know the founders created this blessed document to protect our freedoms and rights and we you know we're being trampled upon by this you know uh, uh, lecherous uh political class we have to go back to what the founders intended and then i had people make me examine that is that even true and i read it fathers the founding fathers and then people would have me So someone actually challenged me to read the Constitution, not just the Bill of Rights, but the first seven articles. I got past Article One and said, "Uh oh," and 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 it. I was like, "Oh no, I don't think this document's that great to begin with." And then I read more. I knew what the Articles of Confederation were, but I read more about it, and I was like, "Oh no, oh God, the ones that sounded the most crazy are the ones that were the most correct." And so that kind of led me into really examining what it is I believe. Economically, I do consider myself more of an Austrian. I, I'm definitely not a, in, in the Chicago school. I'm not a Marxist. Um, right. but I, so I'm, I'm definitely consider myself economically an, uh, an, an Austrian. So I guess to that extent, I'm an anarcho-capitalist. Um, I would say in terms of politically and how organi- societies are best organized, I'm more of what I call a panarchist, which means that I believe that something looking like anarcho-capitalism, something between agorism and anarcho-capitalism is probably what's going to be the most effective way of people voluntarily voluntarily organizing their societies. Mm-hmm. But I also recognize that if seven and a half billion people no longer live under the state, I have a hard time believing that all seven and a half billion people are going to voluntarily organize their society the exact same way. And that's a good thing because we'll get to learn from each other. So long as we remove the coercion, if something doesn't work, we can learn from how someone's doing it that does work. If something does work, we can show that to others as how it does work. And I think that that's a good thing. So while I, I do think that there are issues, for example, with anarcho-communism or even certain things wrong with anarcho-mutualism, although, although anarcho-mutualism is pretty solid, but you know, anarcho-syndicalism and things like that, 
what I will say is, you know, I talk, you know, I can talk to them about the economic calculation problem and things like that. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if we've removed the coercion and we're allowing people to individually self-determine what it is they want, how they want to associate with others, they're and, and in keeping with their right to their their bodies, their lives, their labor and their property, then ultimately I think it's all going to wash out. And I think that in the meantime, I'd much rather focus on the reality of what we're facing than make enemies with people who I disagree with on, let's say, 10 or 15%, even if it's an important 10 or 15%, we agree on the other 85 or 90% and, and, and can move forward on that. So, but no, I, I definitely, I, I think economically, I think Austrian, the, the Austrian business cycle and Austrian theory uh, are, are, are the closest to what is observable. And, and what I like about Austrian, the Austrian school of thought when it comes to economics is that unlike most of the other ones, which try to treat economics as this uh, measurable thing, almost like a science of, of, of static, you know, like a static science. I, I, I like that Austrians tend to treat it more as a study of human action, which in my mind, science, economics is really just human action applied to math. And so to try to treat it as this thing you can make a formula for, in my mind, we don't, we aren't able to, we aren't able to formulate human action yet. Like we haven't been able to figure out exactly how. Right. There's no mathematical model. There, there isn't. I'm sure we can maybe reach a point where there is, where we can down to a science, say this person's going to do this based on this ridiculous equation I've created. That's, is it possible? Sure. As of yet, we aren't anywhere near that. And so it is, it is so much better to look at it as a study of, of the perception of human action as applied to math in cooperation with others, competing with and cooperating with each other uh, for scarce resources than to treat it as this, like I created this formula, therefore this is how it's going to work. Perfect way to explain it too. And uh, I think it's Tom Woods that says, you know, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the Austrian school, Austrian school, which you were alluding to, isn't prescriptive like these Keynesians and Marxists like to talk about with mathematical models and such. Uh, the Austrian school is more of a descriptive thing Correct. where we're we're explaining, yep. like you just said, what voluntary exchange is, what capital, you know, human action, uh, you know, which is the essential, the the essential uh, idea of capitalism. Right. Uh, voluntary exchange without a third party intermediary telling you that you can produce or can't, you can or cannot produce a face mask when you need them. Right. So, Correct. Uh, yep. Exactly. Uh, it all, it all, it all comes together. So great explanation, by the way. So, um, as we, as we get further along into this, I want to ask you now, uh, well, well, you mentioned your podcast, so we'll touch on that real quick. There's so much I could talk to you about. I might have to have you back on here. Oh, absolutely. Uh, trust me. And I need to have you back on. Do you know you're one of the people that I still to this day will have people say, uh, have you ever done a crypto episode? And I'll say, yeah. And I'll, and I'll give them the link and I'll say, you know, by the way, uh, go ahead and forgive me because I didn't realize I needed to keep my internet connection plugged in. I had you on Wi-Fi, which is why we had so many problems so many times. But I'm like, it's still a good episode. Watch it. And I'll have so many people come back and say, oh, you need to have him back on. Like, you know, he had, he like was very informative about what crypto is and I have more questions that I'd love for you to ask. So you need to come back on mine and I will definitely come back on yours in the Absolutely. future as well. Count on it. I appreciate the compliment as well. Uh, I, I had a lot of fun doing that. Yeah, that was great. So let's, let's talk about your podcast here for a minute. Um, you, you, you alluded to it. You do mm -hmm. one by yourself still and then one with Matt, right? That's correct. Yeah. So I, I went on the one uh, called my fellow Americans, which I love the title of that. Uh, when did you, when did you start doing that podcast? 
And um, how did that come about on Muddy Waters Media? Were you friends with the guy who uh, – is Matt the uh, uh, original creator or was there somebody else involved? Yes. So originally it was uh, a guy named, uh, well, it was Matt Wright and, and, a, and a friend of ours named Muhammad Shaker. Um, they were the original people that did it. They started December of 2016. So like right after Trump was elected, they started it. And they had been talking about doing it for a while before that. And then in 2018, in the, uh, like around June, of, May or June of 2018, they reached out to me and said, how would you like to do a show on you know muddied waters we're now not just going to have our show which is on tuesday nights we're gonna you know have you know would you like to have a show on on muddy waters as well we're rebranding as muddy waters media where we're going to have the muddy waters of freedom and then and, and and your show as well and i said sure and it was actually something that i had been thinking of doing for a while but i never just i just never pulled the trigger because i, I always was like you know, does, do we need another libertarian podcast? But, but so, and I, and I hate to say that because there's some great, I mean, your, your podcast, right? Like, I mean, these are great things, but in my mind, I'm thinking, what am I going to contribute that isn't already being contributed? Um, and so, and my wife was very encouraging. She's like, you need to do this. I think she just wanted me out of her hair for two hours a day, <laughs> two hours a week. And, uh, and so, um, uh, cause if I'm not talking to you about it, I'm talking to her and she does not care. I watch um, your she, podcast all the time. I, I watch it a lot on uh, Facebook and stuff. And when oh, cool. Yeah, about, cool. Yeah. So, I like so, to get in the comments. Yeah, oh, you know, the comments are the best. So, so they asked me to do it, and, and they said, your, your first episode will be on the 4th of July. And I thought, well, that's perfect. So the first episode I had on the 4th of July, I had a guy named Lou Sander on, and we just crapped on American history and, and, and our perception of it and, and talked about what the truth of, of the, the founding of the, the constitutional republic and all of that. And uh, we're, we're pretty brutal about it. And so that was my first episode. And I've, I think you were like my sixth guest, eighth guest, something like that. And uh, I think I was in the top five. Let's get it right. No, I'm just joking. No, you may have been. Honestly, you were one of my first because I wanted I think to do I was a number crypto. Three. I think I was you, number three. Uh, you weren't number three because a guy named Taylor Millard was, but you might have okay. been number four, honestly. I'm just like, joking. I didn't mean to interrupt your story. No, no, no. I, you yeah. were definitely top 10. You may yeah. have even been top five. But anyway, so so I, I started, I was doing the show and then in uh, towards the end of 2018, I think October of 2018, Muhammad decided that he wanted to kind of take a leave from doing Muddy Waters. It was a bit much to, for him to continue doing it. And mm -hmm. so they reached out to me and asked if I'd, if I'd like to to, to, you know, replace, fill in for and or possibly replace Muhammad. And so I came in and, and did that and, uh, and had a, a real blast doing it. Uh, we had Muhammad back a couple times as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, so it's, uh, it's just been, and so the, the Muddy Waters of Freedom is a topical show. We talk about the week's events and, and what happened and so forth. Um, so it's more like a current event show. Um, it's almost like, a, you know, the daily show type of a thing. And then that's the, what I love about it is you get like, you got you have such a good commentary on like what's going on too like you're well versed in a lot of topics i didn't mean to interrupt you again but yeah, yeah no, I, love, right. I love the i love the um the daily the daily idea of getting it like right away instead of you know uh maybe a week later even or something I, yeah i love that about it yeah and i mean we do do it weekly but we try to like focus on like what the biggest events were for that week so and and give comment give libertarian commentary on what it is and then on 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 wednesday nights is my show my fellow americans and i'll have a guest although uh sometimes i don't have a guest i do an ask me anything episode or i do campaign updates and stuff like that and and my show has become more segmented over time so now i have like a campaign update part and i have something called my fellow final my fellow americans where i give them 30 seconds to answer some stupid question and, and stuff like that so like I've, I've segmented it a little bit more than when you were on but basically, the purpose of both shows is to 
be humorous and to actually reach out outside of libertarian circles. It's not to say that it's not welcome for libertarians to watch, but we're actually trying to pull people in with a topical conversational uh, uh, form of programming, which is why, like, if you look at the comments, so many people are either disagreeing with me or asking me questions or mm-hmm. debating with me on the subject because they're Republicans, they're Democrats, they're socialists, they're, uh, uh, I even had some Marxists, they're anarchists, but, you know, different type of anarchists. Yeah. They're, you know, they're libertarians who, you know, want to, you know, pick Gary Johnson types, like all across the whole spectrum, but especially a lot of people that don't even consider themselves libertarians or anarchists that tune in. And, and the whole point is to bring people into the movement, use humor and goodwill to reach out to them where they are, and then bring them into it. And so, and I, this will probably be your next question, so I don't want to crap all over it, but that, no, that, fe- that feeds into uh, how I've been campaigning and, and why I decided to campaign in the first place. Yeah, so the, you, you, you did just nail it again. <laughs> uh, when, when did, it's basically when you met Vermin and how yeah. you decided that this was going to come about. Right, right, right. So I had a, I, I just, I could see it in your eyes that that was going to be, <laughs> I, I could see you going, oh, please don't answer my next question. So that's actually, so uh, in, I was concerned about Vermin when I, I've been following Vermin since like 08. Okay. Uh, so I've known him for a well, while. Really 1985, but. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no you're, you're right. Now, I've been following him. I've been following him since 1988. No, 88. so no, I've been following his campaigning since like 08 or something like that. And I've always been fascinated by him and thought he was terrific and hilarious. And I totally got his shtick when I heard that he was running for the Libertarian Party nomination, but like for real this time, yeah. like with an actual campaign team of people I knew and respected and 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 knew this was a serious, legit thing. And I'd reach out to him and say is this real? Like you guys aren't joking. They're like, no, we're serious. We, we believe he's the best pick. And I'm like, really? And, and so I had to really like think about that. Cause I'm like, I don't know if he is. And, and, and I, I never would, you know, there are some people who are like, you people are ruining the part. I never thought anything like that, but I, I want to ask curious. you about that after this. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No problem. So I, but I was curious as to why they thought this was why he was the best pick, not just as sort of a, a good commentary on things, but as the actual nominee. And mm-hmm. so I did more research and the more I saw, the more I liked. Uh, I was also a huge and still am a huge Kim Ruff fan and a huge Dan Berman fan. Um, and so, uh, um, and so I, 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 but so I reached out to Vermin. He came on my show in sometime the end of September, either se- end of September, beginning of October. I should probably know that since we're I running. I somehow together. missed that episode. I don't, I don't have to go back. It's one of, it's one of the funniest ones I ever did. So I had him on where I was like, okay, listen, I'm going to have some serious time with you, but I also want to have fun. Like I get that, you know, like part of your shtick is like being fun and making fun of this whole thing, which is what my show is about. So it was perfect. So we totally hit it off. He apparently went back to his team and was like, that guy's great. I love him, whatever. And so they kept reaching out to me and saying, you know, he and they kept reaching out to me and saying, you know, we'd like to have you as a part of the team. And I was always like, yeah, you know, well, I'd like to, you know, talk with you guys and have, you know, have you on and, and, um, and all that. But I'm trying to stay neutral right now because, you know, I'm, I'm booking people and I don't want them to think I'm in the tank for one, one candidate or another. But I, I really, I, I understand what you guys are doing and I totally believe in it. And so then it, uh, we went to uh, the, the South Carolina Libertarian Party conventions like an hour from where I live in Florence, South Carolina. So I went with that. Matt flew up. And Vermin and his Southeast Regional Coordinator came down. That's how serious this campaign is. He, he, we have a Southeast Regional Coordinator. And so anyway, so... I didn't realize it was so detailed, to be honest. It is. We have a team of like over 100 people. Wow. 
Like we have a serious professional. I'm glad you dropped that because I don't think a lot of people would know that. Yeah. We have a well-oiled campaign team. That's like impressive. it's, and they're super like laissez-faire with how they let us do stuff, but they are, we, when we yeah. need support, we have a crazy team behind us. So anyway, so, and it's only grown, like it's only been grown. It was maybe, you know, 50 or 60 when I got on and now it's over a hundred and it's been steadily I'm sure you grown. brought some more ammunition along. Oh, I've definitely, I've definitely done my part, but I mean, yeah. it's, this thing's been growing before I even came on. But anyway, so we all shared an Airbnb together in Florence, South Carolina. That was a ton of fun. And we made some TikTok videos together, which are like hundreds of thousands of people saw him and it's like us going, Hey kids. Like, I mean, just total silliness and, and had a total blast there and had a great time at the convention. He did a great job at the debates um, and all of that. And he went back to his campaign team again and was like, I, you know, Spike is awesome. He's great. You know, we really, I really love him. And so about two weeks later, they reached out to me uh, 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 and said, we, we'd like you to be the, the vice presidential running mate. And I'm like, <laughs> and I went to bed and because I'm sure they were joking. Yeah. And then I wake up to like this inbox full of, no, we're serious. Yeah, no, we definitely want you. And I'm yeah. like, and I said, okay, well, I'm going to ask my wife. Fully thinking she was going to be like, no, this is stupid. My wife's very straight laced and serious. She has a sense of humor, but she's not silly. Right. So, you know, like she doesn't attract, right? Yeah, that must be, it must be because she's also attractive and I'm definitely not. (laughs) But so I, I I went to, so I, I I went to her and I'm like, you know, Vermin Supreme has asked me to be his vice presidential running mate. And she's like, Oh, that'll be great for you. You like that kind of silly stuff. And I'm like, Oh, well then I guess I'm doing this. And so I, I told them I'd do it. And then it turns out we had to wait a month I thought we were going to be announcing like right then or maybe a few days later. No, it was like I had to sit on that through oh, that, Thanksgiving. That had, I had to, to kill on... you. I know the type of person you are. I know you wanted to go live I'm with that. I'm doing a show twice a week. <laughs> and I can't – and people are like, hey, what do you got coming up? I know you got big stuff coming up. And I'm like, <laughs> you wait and see. And like at Thanksgiving, people were like, hey, so what have you been up to? And I'm like, you know, just plugging away. And I like had – so it was like I had to wait like a legit month, t- December 14th when I announced. In, in Nashville. I was so relieved to just be able to say that I was doing this. And so, um, and so that's where it starts. So that's what started all of this. And the reason I, I chose to do this is because I realized even before Vermin asked me that Vermin was doing a variation of what I was doing, but just on a way bigger and grander scale. I like to use humor to disarm people's cognitive biases. When you talk with someone about something like politics, belief systems, economics, faith, religion, any of these really like, you know, foundational subjects that people take seriously and that people see as a life or death thing. You, if you attack, if they perceive that you're attacking what they believe, even if you're being really congenial about it, their defenses go up because they are cognitively taking this as though you are attacking their self-worth, who they are as a person. They take it very personally. They take it very personally. So no matter how respectful you are, and it actually reaches a point where if you try to be meek about it, their hackles go up even more because they think you're trying to sneak something on them. But if you come in with humor, it disarms it. George Carlin was able to drop some of the craziest anarchist propaganda on his audience because he spent the first 20 minutes just dropping silly jokes on him. And somewhere halfway through it, all of a sudden, he's not even joking anymore. He's not even saying anything. He's not even doing punchlines to get applause lines in between. He's just telling you, you know, it's a big country club and you're not a part of it. And if voting, you know, did anything, then if voting did anything, then they wouldn't let you do it. Like just dropping like straight up, you know, like in my mind, anarchist propaganda or at least anti-establishment propaganda. And they were eating it up 
because he knocked down, and, and it was a room full of Democrats and Republicans. He knocked down their cognitive defenses, and then he went, and then he, he humorously said what he had to say. And then as they got more into it, he could drop the humor and actually be serious. And it was never like he was beating them up, but he just, he could be more and more direct, linear, and serious. No, Bernie that's a great Sanders, analogy on social commentary and, and using comedy to get through. Yeah, and that's what Vermin does. He does it in a slightly different way and in a, in a way that disarms you completely because you first think he's completely joking and then you realize there's something legit to this. I witnessed it firsthand. We were in New Hampshire in February uh, when I got coronavirus uh, and we were in the New Hampshire primaries and we went to Bernie rallies and we went to a Bernie victory rally. Bernie just gave a speech. Everyone was excited to see uh, Vermin and me holding a, 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 a pony head on a stick and <laughs> signaling that Vermin had come into the room. The Yang rally, the Tulsi rally, the um, uh, there was no one at the Steyer rally, but they had amazing roast beef there. Um, uh, the, the Bernie rally, people were dropping their signs to have their selfies taken with Vermin and have him sign stuff for them and saying, if Bernie doesn't get it, I'm voting for you. If Tulsi doesn't get it, I'm voting for you. If Yang, now that Yang's dropped out, you're my guy. But what was really cool was that so many people would say, what is this about seriously? And we'd answer that. We'd tell them, and we had a ton of people. We got uh, 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 one of the uh, Yang Gang uh, social media people from Pennsylvania that night. He became a he. He switched his blue hat to a pony. Wow! Like, <laughs> like on, on on Twitter, and, and the and Yang get, crew, the Yang Gang was pretty uh, pretty hardcore. They they weren't joking around either. They were not joking around, and yeah. and 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 so this is a like we are using a very unique an incredibly fun way to reach out to people. It, I never have to worry about, you know, oh, is this going to pull well with this group or whatever? We say the silliest, funniest stuff. We spent like the better part of 12 hours getting the safe auto insurance Twitter account to drop out of the presidential race, endorse us for president and vice president and award us their delegates. And then we got, and then now we're, we're working on Liberty Mutual with safe autos help. Wow. This is the kind of stuff we do. And it just, and we're doing it because it's fun and it gets people's attention. And I have people DM me and go, what the hell are you doing? What even is this? Are you guys serious? And I'll say, hey, great question. Let me tell you what I'm doing. And I start breaking down the whole commentary on the, the system being a joke and being run by clowns who do nothing but lie to you. And I, I we call it boot pilling them, that we, we reach out to them by going to where they are with humor. And I've done some other stuff too. I've, I've, I've toured housing projects where I was far less humorous. I was a lot more serious there because those are people in an acute situation. They don't want me to come there and offer them free cheesy bread and all that stuff. I go to universities where I have a blast, but it's the same thing. We use humor and goodwill to disarm people's cognitive biases and defenses, listen to what they have to say, and then, and then reach them where they are and spread the message. And it's been incredibly successful. It's why we are... By some accounts, the front runners for the race. Just so everyone knows, I put this out at briar.io. That's my website and across like Anchor and other stuff in MP3 only form. So I wanted to mention, you can see on Spike's profile on YouTube and this will be on Facebook and some other video platforms that Ver Vermin wears a boot on his head. That's what he's alluding to right now, the boot pilled. Uh, so what I wanted to talk to you now about, um, you, you're alluding to going to um, universities and stuff and you and I spoke a little bit about uh, your speeches. I watched your uh, the first speech you gave, your acceptance speech that you were going to be running with him. 
where what, what what's the speaking uh, engagements like? Have you spoke at some universities then? Uh, how are you enjoying all that stuff? So we did. I did. I did one at UNC Greensboro. It was mostly where I was meeting with people and having conversations with individuals and in small groups. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did do some some speaking there. Uh, I've given speeches at a few of the state uh, uh, party conventions, uh, which went over well. Basically, a stump speech explaining why I thought Vermin and I were the best pick, um, and uh, and then answering questions from the gallery. I actually prefer answering questions to a speech. So my speeches are three minutes long, five minutes long. Sometimes I'm not even giving a prepared speech. I'm just talking some bullet, you know, I'm just talking from, you know, a bulleted list of talking points because A, I like to be authentic and B, I'd like to get to answering people's questions because I can only guess what people want to know in that room. I'd rather they ask me. That's why I like these, this type of format. I'd rather answer people's questions, even if they're tough questions, especially if they're tough questions because they're not the only ones thinking it. And so, and especially when we are presenting a very sincere, a very radical deviation from the way the Libertarian Party, really any party has ever done a a presidential race. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we understand there's some pushback to that. But I I think that the, I think that the, the reward is so much higher when you look at Vermin's popularity, his engagement, the fact that his, his engagement online and in person is so much higher than any other third, third party candidate. The fact that we're getting invited to stuff. He was invited to speak at the uh, New England College Convention, first third party candidate to ever speak at it. Um, he, he spoke after Tulsi and, and, and Liz Warren. This was back in, in uh, uh, late January, and, uh, or actually, actually mid-January. And he went there, rocked the crowd, declared war on Narnia, did his whole spiel, came up, had this whole chant thing. When I say free, you say ponies. And, and then yeah. led them on, a, on an ad lib national anthem with his loud speed, his loud horn, his uh, air horn or whatever. That, like he did all that. But then he then dropped for 10 or 15 minutes the Libertarian Party platform and the Libertarian message on him. And they ate it up. They gave him a, a standing ovation. That's they, awesome. would have never, they would have never done that if he had come in just doing it the standard way. And so we understand that we're offering a very extreme deviation. The colleges love us. When I come wearing my vermin pin, no one knows who I am. But they're like, oh, do you like Vermin Supreme? I'm like, he's my running mate. And they're like, oh my gosh, you know Vermin Supreme? I went to a doctor for like a routine follow-up visit at, at a doctor's office. And um, the student, so I had my doctor and then like a student doctor that was that was shadowing. And he's looking at the thing and I'm like, he's going to ask me about Vermin. Sure enough, he goes, you, you vote for Vermin Supreme? I said, I'm his running mate. And he lit up. And he's like, oh, can I, can I get your release for me to tell my friends that I met Vermin's running mate today? I'm like, yeah, yeah I don't like, this is a follow-up. You can tell them whatever you want. But so like, you know, and getting selfies and the whole thing, like we have Vermin brings a level of celebrity that no other third party candidate has. He's who, everything. Who was the one that you said that didn't, uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, who go ahead. The one you said uh, didn't have anybody there, but they had good food. Was that Tulsi? No, Tom Steyer. No, Tulsi had a lot of people at her thing. That's Tom Steyer. Tom Steyer, the billionaire who was running, he wasn't even there. There were only like eight or 10 people there. They were all his employees that were there what, watching the results at that night. And, but they had the best food there. We got so many like cookies and cake. We like went in with our pony sticks and, and we showed up because they were about to close everything. They were about to head home. And I mm-hmm. said, we're here to give our support and condolence in this tough time. And they're like, your condolences? And I said, yes, because you didn't win the primary. And they looked at me like, we weren't going to win the primary. Like, it was just so funny. They were like, we never thought we were going to win the primary. But so we, they were like, 
would you mind if we have some of your food? And they're like, yeah, take it. So like all of these like, you know, vermin people go and take all the food and then we leave. But, um, but yes. And then we went to the Bernie rally. There was like, I think like 10,000 people there or something. And I would say at least 4,000 of them took selfies and, 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 and got autographs from, from either me, vermin or both of us. That's awesome. Um, they yeah, loved us. I didn't want to backtrack too much, but I wanted yeah. to ask you about that. What, uh, so a couple quick questions here. What sure. has the, I know that you mentioned there's been like some blowback or whatever. Let's get into that real quick because um, I honestly am not privy to what exactly is going on there. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't follow politics real closely. You know that right. you're my, you're my friend. So I try to keep up with what you're up to. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, but I don't know the exact – honestly don't know the story. And, uh, you know, some of my audience might not know what's going on with that too. So I know that uh, Tom Woods is also a part of the whole libertarian thing this go-around, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. And is he has – Is that part of what's going on? Is there is he part of the crew that you guys have problems with or that there's some sort of conflict? Or is – what am I, am I hot in that? So, or? so I wouldn't say we have conflict as much with like, so he's more of like the, the uh, Mises caucus people, which I'm actually a member of the Mises caucus. Um, but so there's not as much blowback from them. They have their preferred candidate, Jacob Hornberger, um, okay. who I like. I actually did door knocking with Jacob. I, I, I think he's a good guy, but that that's his and Jake, like we have a good working relationship or a good, I guess, congenial relationship as, as opponents or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But he, uh, so he's their pick that they don't have a VP pick um per se but uh, i know some in there like me and some some prefer someone else but there's not really as much heat there the heat we're getting is from the gatekeepers of the party the uh, people who want a say for example a lincoln chafee or a joe jorgensen or someone who's more in their mind respectable palatable um like not the as gary a johnson crew or am i is that is that closer or no yeah like the gary johnson crew like okay. the, the people who think that the best thing that we should do is find someone who has you know a history as an elected official even yeah. though it's as a even as even though it's as someone who often did the opposite of what we want <laughs> a politician to do but they have that experience and that respectability and that name recognition and all of that and they call themselves pragmatists with all due respect you can't call something pragmatism if it always fails. Pragmatism implies that there's a trade-off that happens in exchange for some kind of gain. Getting 3.25% of the vote is not a gain. It is not a, a, an acceptable trade-off of your principles for that. And, and meanwhile, I think that we will get way more of the vote than any of their candidates will. So we are, in my mind, the pragmatic choice. It, it, what have libertarians been saying for so long? If only we had a candidate who was a principled libertarian, not just, you know, agreed with us on one or two things, but was a principled down the line libertarian, agreed with our entire platform, our entire concept of self-ownership and voluntary natures and voluntary nature and, 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 you know, a society built on fallen voluntary interaction and, you know, remove, dismantling coercive and oppressive uh, institutions like the state. And, 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 and if, they, if only they had, you know, this amazing personality built around them and this amazing following built around them that was outside of our existing circles of influence that they could bring in. And, and especially with the youth, if they had support among the youth, that would just be absolutely amazing. And only if they had such an amazing personality that the media just couldn't ignore them and they would just suck up all the attention in the room and make it so that the other candidates couldn't even get a word in edgewise because all the media wanted to do is talk to our guy who is a principled, popular guy that everyone loves. Well, we have that. That is you guys, right? That is Vermin Supreme and me as president and vice president. The compromise there is that if you have a problem with the boot and the ponies 
and the toothbrushing and all that stuff and going back in time to kill baby Hitler and the whole spiel. If you have a problem with the way we do stuff, you'll just have to make peace with that. Like that's literally the only compromise. We are not asking you to compromise on principle. We are not asking you to compromise on the, on the end goal of, of, of getting more votes than we've ever gotten before, possibly even scoring high enough in the opinion polls that we can end up on the debate stage. You see how pissed off people are that they will have once again shoved, you know, last time it was Hillary, Hillary Clinton, this time it's Joe Biden. Once again, they've shoved an establishment hack who's only marginally different from Donald Trump down the throats of the DNs, of, of, of Democrat voters, left of center voters. They love vermin. How easy of a sell would it be for us to say, hey, everyone, we're the nominees of the Libertarian Party. How would you like to have Vermin Supreme standing between Donald Trump and Joe Biden with a boot on his head and be the only one on stage who can form a coherent sentence? Like, I think it would be great to see. How easy of a sale is that? Yeah. So, so we get a lot of heat from the what I call the gatekeepers. Like I said, they call themselves pragmatists. With all due respect, I think it's just fear of change. Yeah. I think I that they are comfortable with the way they've been doing things for 49 years, which has not gotten us a single federal or statewide victory ever. We have never won a gubernatorial election. We have never won like a cert, uh, attorney general or, or you know, any of the state where the whole state votes on it. We've never won any of those. We've never won a, con- a U.S. congressional or a U.S. Senate election. We've never won a presidential election. It's the business highest, as usual, right? We've won a couple of state yeah. Legislative elections, and I, I think, I think I can count them on two hands. I don't think it's past. Well, two just hands. like the state becomes co-opted, so so do these organizations that um, you know you try to you try to become a part of to do good change, change it from and the inside. Exactly, change it so, from the inside. I got a couple more questions for you. Sure. Uh, I know you're a busy guy, and I definitely yeah. want to have you on again in the uh, next few months if you have. That'd be great. That would be great. Okay, great. So let's uh, let's let's wrap up here with a couple quick ones. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you have to do to get on the debate stage? Um, what what's that sort of uh, that that path look like? So once we, assuming we get the nomination, all we would have to do is score. I think it's fifteen percent on two established opinion polls before the date of the debate. In my mind, that will be eminently easy when the only other two people are Donald Trump and Joe Biden, especially when we're all on equal footing now. We can't go outside. Everyone's going to look like this. Did you see Joe Biden? Anyone who's watching this, once you're done watching it and subscribing to everything that, 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 you know, that John does and, 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 you know, getting the whole, getting the whole thing. Once you, once you've done all of that, once you've completely serviced both of our uh, social media profiles and, and, and followed us on everything, go Google Joe Biden zoom political rally. He tried using Zoom, the thing we're using right now to connect to each other, right. and complete. He and his campaign team tried, and it was an hour of him going, "Is my mic on? Uh, uh, where's the camera? Where's the camera?" And, and and for whatever reason, when he would talk, his audio would come like five seconds before his video. Like, I mean, it was the it was amateur hour. Another another friend of mine and I were just talking about how Bush League uh, a lot of these guys are, and uh, especially like guys that are going on like Fox News and stuff right now, the economics guys. And don't for uh, I don't want anyone to get f- confused. That's just my pseudonym that he's alluding to, John Liberty on the Facebook. It, oh, that's right. You use yeah, your I'll thing know. here. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You, yeah, you use your. Yeah, it might your, be confusing to anybody. Out I apologize. Yeah. I apologize. Yeah, no, it's perfect because it, it, it is. Yeah, it is great that um, it is great what you're talking about because these these bush league economists and stuff or these economists that are trying to run these 
uh, things out of their house now. I mean, look how much better prepared you and I are than these people that are like Joe Biden. I haven't seen the one you're even alluding to, but it's I know a, it, it it's must a, be a disaster. It's a joke. We have weekly meetings that look better than this, and we're not even trying. This right. is they relied on the perception of popularity, filling stadiums, filling school auditoriums. They can't do that. It's literally just us sitting here and we look so much better. So we look better prepared. We have better ideas. We have better charisma. We will destroy them. Like we, we so uh, Vermin. Where are you guys sitting right now? I don't, uh, uh, overall with, with the libertarian. Uh, so we, we won the, uh, so we don't, so the way it works is we don't have binding primaries. We have basically like straw polls and even the state primaries aren't binding. So it, we won't know how it's going until the actual convention happens, which at this point looks like it's not actually going to happen. And we may end up with a, a nightmare scenario where the LNC has to pick that like the LNC board members have to pick the candidate based on the perception, based on the perception of the will of the delegates. But I think that that's an easy, that that's one that we can win too. Oh, oh, of course, because we come to them and say, Hey, listen, look at our social media. Our social media is, is more than almost all of the other candidates combined. I don't doubt that more than any other, other, we have so much more influence every single week. I share like 40 or 50 screenshots, new screenshots from like that day of people saying I'm voting for vermin Supreme. I'm voting for vermin Supreme. people who are not libertarians, people that we did not ask them to say this. I'm just searching vermin Supreme on Twitter and just seeing I'm voting for him. I'm voting for him. If he gets the nomination, I'm voting for him. If he's not, I'm going to write him in. I'm voting for him. I'm voting for him. I'm voting for him. Bernie was my guy. I'm voting for vermin. Yang was my guy. I'm voting for Vermin. Uh, 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 um, um, Tulsi was my person. I'm voting for Liz Warren. You know, I used to like Trump, but he's betrayed us. I'm voting. I'm, I'm, I'm voting for for Vermin. Like we keep seeing it. No other candidate is getting that level of attention. And I have tremendous respect for most of the people that are running for the Libertarian Party nomination. This isn't a personal thing. It's a. It's an issue of Vermin is also a principled libertarian who just has this. You know, crazy. Uh, you know, personality that he's built over the 30 years and an incredible and growing influence that he has. We are so uniquely positioned to spread the liberty message, not just to, you know, non-voters and the people who knows, vote their, uh, uh, hold their noses when they go to vote, but to an entire generation of kids and young voters who are deciding right now what their belief system is going to be. And most of it are going to keep with that belief, belief system for the next 50, 60, 70 years. We have such an opportunity here. And, and in my mind, it's a no brainer. It's why I joined onto it. It's why I've, I've, I'm, you know, dedicating myself all the way up to November to, to, you know, to, to do this campaign if we're picked. Is, is that, that when, believe- when is the decision made uh, by the LNC or whatever for the, um, so the convention's scheduled for May, okay. but again, if, I mean, the city of Austin is saying we can't have gatherings of more than 10 people. Now they, they've only extended it to May 3rd so far, but I don't think much is going to change between now yeah, and then. So, if anything, it'll be even more so like it is. So it's looking more and more like either we're actually trying to organize having all of the, the del, all the pledge delegates form like a, a Facebook poll or something so that we can actually have the will of the delegates, even if it's not for us and be able to say to the LNC, Hey, listen, let this inform your opinion that if the delegates had gotten together, this is possibly more than likely what they would have picked. If they don't do that, then our direct appeal is listen, 
there is no one else that's going to get you the votes, both for president and vice president and all the way down the ballot that anyone else is. There's no one else that's going to be able to spread the message like we are. No one is positioned the way we are. So in my mind, either way, whether it's chosen by the delegates or it's chosen by the uh, chosen by the LNC, I think we're the best pick. In terms of how we've done it in the states, uh, Vermin has won New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Illinois. And there's, uh, I think there's a fourth one I'm forgetting. He came in second in North Carolina and uh, California. And um, he came in, I want to say third in Florida. So you it's guys have a legitimate shot, right? Now. We have a legitimate shot. Like, yeah. like Vermin is, is, like I said, some would call us the front runner. We're at least competitive. We're at least competitive and no one can dispute that we're competitive, but, but some would even say we're the front runner. But again, those are non-binding. They're straw polls, essentially. Um, the, the, the public primaries, unfortunately, uh, a, a lot of times people were picking no preference because they didn't even know who their, who their picks were. But those are the ones where Vermin did the best because he was the only name they recognized. As a blockchain guy, it would be pretty cool if you guys, if, if this vote did have to take place um, uh, online that you guys yeah. somehow did it on the, on one of these blockchains. On the blockchain. That's blockchain. what I'm pushing. That's actually what I'm pushing for is yeah. for, we can't do it in this one because the bylaws would have to change, but I'm pushing for from night from, you know, from moving forward Onward. in future elections, yeah. doing online public encrypted blockchain powered primaries, which would incentivize us to go and talk to the public instead of existing libertarian delegates, yeah. which means that we're actually incentivizing us to go and talk to other people and, and grow the party rather than talk to each other constantly. Um, it would also demonstrate that we, we make better and more dynamic choices than the government does. It would save the delegates and the members a fortune in having to do all these travel costs to go places just to, you know, just to check on a box who they're voting for. It would save the, the, the state affiliates a fortune. They'd be able to focus that money on ballot access and things like that. And it would bring in money because we could say, hey, listen, you can vote in our primary. All you got to do is become a member of the state and state and, uh, and national and state delegate, which would cost you, I think, like 30 bucks or something like that. And, and you can vote in all of our elections. We're right. supposed to be green too, right? So uh, think about it's green. Save it's green yeah. if there happens to be oh I don't know a freaking pandemic that you can't leave your house. We can still <laughs> imagine a situation. Yeah. RL, imagine a situation where I keep wanting to call you John. Imagine hey, a situation. I get it all the time. It's my own fault because I went under a pseudonym on Facebook. But go it, ahead. It, it's fine. Yeah. Imagine a situation where if we had already had this in place and no one else could have elections because they don't have it, and we could still have our elections. But anyway, oh, it's beautiful. It's, it's neither, it's, it's, you know, you know. Maybe if I'm brought on as a chief block, blockchain economist once you're in the White House. Absolutely. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Chief yeah. blockchain person. Um, we have, and, and another big blockchain person, John McAfee, uh, yeah. we're trying to get him on as our president of vice. And so basically what we would do is we would merge the uh, ATF and uh, DEA and make it into a, a, a big box retail store where they sell drugs and guns. And we would have, <laughs> we would have John try out all the products as they come in, all the drugs and guns as they came in and explosives and stuff. Uh, and, and we would charge on, on pay-per-view for people to watch and do that. Uh, possibly paying down the national debt single-handedly. That might do it. He's a little hard to locate right now, so it might have to be done remotely. That's Oh, it would. It would definitely have to be. <laughs> Everything has to be done remotely right now. We can't leave That's our houses. True. So, yeah, you know, every, everyone's doing it remotely. Yeah. All right, so last question. This is why I wrap up every show. And uh, since this is uh, primarily a uh, blockchain show, but mm -hmm. I also want to have entrepreneurs and people like yourself on that are all about free markets. Mm -hmm. Tailor it a little bit differently, but it's still pretty much the same question. I always ask what people, what Bitcoin means to them. But for me, it's free markets. So I'm going to ask you basically the same question uh, tailored to free markets. So what are free markets and like 
just the overall ethos of freedom and, you know, the libertarian uh, ethos and all that stuff mean to you? Sure, absolutely. I can actually answer both of those. Um, so my, so I boil down libertarianism. I distill it down pretty simply because often I'm telling it to people that have never heard of libertarianism or, like I said, they've heard a terrible version of libertarianism. I got mine, screw everyone else, which is not what libertarianism is. Libertarianism distilled to me is very simple. You own yourself. Because you own yourself, you own your body and your life. Because you own your life and your body, you own your labor, your ability to use your body and your mind and everything else. Because you own your labor, you own your, the product of your labor, your property. Because you own your, yourself, your life, your body, your labor, and your property, you inherently own these things. These are your rights that you have. And anyone who tries to take that from you, libertarians believe that that is inherently immoral and an act of aggression that we should all oppose. All you owe anyone else is to not aggress on them, and all they owe you is to not aggress on, on you. What you can do is work in cooperation with each other using your, your body, your mind, your property, your, 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 your labor, and everything else in cooperation with them. That's called voluntary interaction. Voluntary interaction allows people to choose to interact with each other. When people decide to steal instead, to take from your body, your life, your property, and your, and your, and your labor and so forth, not only, is what they, not only is what they're doing morally wrong, mm -hmm. it's also, it doesn't work. It doesn't work from a utilitarian perspective. You're always going to get better interactions from people if it's done in a, a voluntary way where there's some kind of quid pro quo, where, where there's some kind of you know, exchange of, 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 of some kind, even if they're volunteering to do it because it makes them feel better and they don't want anything back. That's the exchange. You're doing that thing. They're doing that thing for you in exchange for them feeling better and feeling like they're contributing or you're giving them money or you're, you're giving them property or you're, you're doing something in a bar or whatever you're always going to get better outcomes from people doing that than from if you force everyone to do it at gunpoint. So as an anarchist, I believe that all theft and all aggression is wrong. Even if it's done by people who hang out in monolithic buildings all day long, all, all day long and sign fancy sheets of paper saying what, what they think everyone should do and put little pieces of metal on other people and order them to go order, you know, boss you around and rob you. Once you strip away the pageantry and the pretense behind that, you're left with people whose actions are no different from that of any other violent thief, which is why we believe that government is an organization that is unfit to exist. So free market to me means people without coercion, working in voluntary interaction with each other and being able to, you know, sometimes cooperate, sometimes compete, but doing so in a non-coercive and voluntary way so that we are interacting with each other for scarce resources to better our lives and the lives of those we care about and indirectly better the lives of everyone that we are serving in the greater market. The market is simply people. When we say a free market, what we're really saying is a free people who are allowed to interact with one another. That is what libertarianism means to me. Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency in general, the idea of, and not even just cryptocurrency, but the idea of, of free market currency. What that means to me is an ability to use currency as a medium for trade like we use dollars and Federal Reserve notes now. Mm -hmm. But instead of them being printed out based on a political agenda of those people who, you know, point guns at us and tell us what to do, it's being printed out based on market need. So imagine a situation where instead of having a currency that you use, that's always just slowly losing value so that, the, so that it, it, we live in a reality where 
the cost of goods and services is just constantly slowly going up. The cost of living is constantly going up. And a lot of us don't even know why it is. We just accept it as a reality. The cost of things just keep going up. We don't even know why. <laughs> it's arbitrary, it's, yeah. It's, it's just, it's just, it is. It's, you know, it's, it's the same reason why you know, we can't fly because you know, it's, it's, it's like gravity. It's just something that exists. Yeah. The reason for that is because of inflation, inflation of the monetary supply. And the reason for the inflation of monetary supply is that the government has their central bank, in, our, in the case of our country, the Federal Reserve, print out endless new notes without creating any corresponding value and flooding the market with it and saying, here, here's more dollars. Well, the market inherently knows that there's no more value. There's just more currency. So that currency that they didn't tax from you and let you keep is now worth less because that same amount of value has been externalized out to the whole currency supply, the monetary supply. And so your monetary goes down, your, your monetary value goes down over time. Imagine a situation where instead of that, you had competing currencies that gained value over time. And you could say, well, I could have this currency and I'll have a little bit of this currency and I'll have a little bit. And, and the cost of living actually goes down or at the very least doesn't go up because the people who are operating that currency and printing out or, or managing the, the, the supply of that currency, they're not doing it because they have some greater political purpose where they can force you to use your currency and print out endless notes that they can spend. They want you to use your currency because they get a little piece of it. And right. because of that, they make the currency competitive because you have other choices and it's going to gain value because they want you to use theirs. So they'll do everything they can to make it the most dynamic currency possible to make it gain value as more and more people come into it and, and choose to use that for it to have more market value. And again, it's not guaranteed that it's going to always gain value. We've seen with Bitcoin, it goes up, it goes down. I'll tell you right now, Bitcoin has been a better pick than the US Federal Reserve note, even during the worst of times. 100%. I think that was very elegantly put on both, both accounts. Um, Thank you. And I especially like how you noted that, um, you know, the dollar is basically uh, the reserve currency of the world based on coercion. And these yeah. ideas that, you know, You're these forced guys, to. Yeah, 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 these guys have a monopoly on violence. Mm -hmm. and from that comes their monopoly on, uh, on the currency. Monetary yep. supply. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, yep. I think that's the perfect way to wrap up this episode with Mr. Spike Cohen. Uh, my good friend and uh, vice presidential candidate uh, who will be coming back on this show uh, in the near future. Mm -hmm. And uh, I want to ask you before I let you go, do you have, where do you want to send people? I know you've got your, a couple links on the screen, but where, what's, what's another good spot to go if, if anybody wants to go find out more about the campaign or so, your, your channels? Yeah. So if you want to find out more about the greater campaign, Vermin Supreme 2020, again, it is very satire heavy, but there is some serious stuff about the platform and stuff in there as well. It is primarily suited for people who just want to be entertained so that we can, like I said, boot pill them, get them into it. Um, and my website is the same way, uh, spike2020.com. I talk about my, my uh, verbal agreement for an even better America, which includes giving free cheesy bread to all Americans, uh, retrofitting your free pony with 20 millimeter Vulcan cannons, uh, forcing police officers to sing the Barney theme song in addition to reading you your Miranda rights and having to let you go if they don't sing it well. Uh, also making them wear the Barney outfit. Uh, Bar that's Barney the dinosaur. Someone, someone asked if I meant Barney from Simpsons. I mean, Barney the dinosaur, of course. Barney fight, um, impeaching the entire Supreme Court and replacing them with uh, the janitor whose name is Reginald and will serve as our king. Um, all sorts of silly stuff. The badger. Right. We, we never actually decide. We just, we just say it's just the badger. We don't really actually explain the badger. It's just a badger. Um, so, you know, it's silly stuff on there, but some serious stuff as well. Um, uh, Spike2020.com, VermintSupreme2020.com. Um, if you go to my social media is uh, at RealSpikeCohen on Twitter. And uh, 
if you go to the address, it's facebook.com slash literally Spike Cohen. If you're searching for it on uh, Facebook, it's Spike Cohen, your next VP. And, uh, and uh, I'd love to, love to hear what you have to say. I'd love to have you join the team. Uh, hey, everybody, go check oh, this oh, out. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. And if you want to just check out what I'm doing as a personality uh, on Muddy Waters, muddiedwatersmedia.com. We are on everything, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, everything as Muddied Waters Media, and you'll be able to check out all of our stuff. Absolutely. That's what I was just going to say. Uh, definitely go check out uh, Muddy Waters Media and give those guys a, a subscribe. Uh, hit that like, that, that sub, that bell. Thank you, Mr. <laughs> Spike Cohen. I appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me on, man. And good luck. I'll talk to you here in the near future. And uh, hang on one second. I'll say a proper goodbye. Sure.